You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, guys, I'm very excited to be uh, kind of jumping into our new ministry year, and uh, I want to publicly honor and say thank you. I won't do the whole list, but just all of the people who came early this morning to, to set up and put the balloons out and get things ready and prepare for our, our barbecue and everything after the service. Uh, please uh, stick around for that. I'll remind you again later. But also, one of the things I was very excited to do as we stepped into this new season of ministry was to, to kind of stop the Josh and Brad show. Um, you guys have suffered long enough over this last ministry year of Josh and I just kind of pulling it off. And uh, I think we kind of came, became a little stagnant coming out of, uh, out of COVID. But one of the things that we've wanted to do in this new season is have more faces up here, have more of you up here to, to welcome, to do announcements, to pray, uh, to, to read scripture. And so every week you'll be seeing that. One of the other things I wanted to make sure uh, we did is make sure that scripture is uh, as seen as the centerpiece of, of what we do here on a Sunday morning. And so although we have communion today, each week we will have uh, our, the, the, the Bible up here to remind us of why we come here and why we gather and, and even the, the, the fundamental, the, 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 um, the centering of our community together is around the word of, of God. So keep your Bibles open uh, this morning to, to Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to be mostly honing in on 6 to 11, but kind of glancing over the first uh, five verses there uh, as well. Acts is a very exciting book. It's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's intrigue, there's, there's, there's death, there's courage, there's jailing, there's, there's beatings. And in the midst of it all, there's this unbelievable courage and boldness of the early Christians. And many of us talk about the good old, well, these are the good old days. These are the, the good old days. But the good old days are full of suffering. <laughs> we always talk, a lot of people say, man, I wish we could be an Acts 2 church. Really? We couldn't handle masks. And you're cons- you want to be an Acts 2 church. I don't know if that's, if that's so true. So we'll unpack. We'll see if you want to be an Acts 2 uh, church or an Acts church. But just a, a few background things when it comes to um, the book of Acts. First of all, in, in verse 1, we see that the, the author who speaks, uh, this is Luke who is writing. Luke, who is writing, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a shame that in all of our Gospels, the go- or, or all of our Bibles, the, in the New Testament, Luke is separated from Acts by the Gospel of John. That is a bad way of putting the New Testament together because they are written by the same person. The Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, or what we call Acts, is written by uh, Luke. And really, they're a continuation of the same story. There should not be uh, anything stopping it in, in the middle. Who was Luke? Luke was a friend of the Apostle Paul. We're going to learn all about the Apostle Paul in in the book of Acts. And tradition tells us that Luke uh, was a traveling companion of Paul. He was also a physician. He was a a doctor and the the author of, as I mentioned, of Acts as well. Um, I tell you, having a doctor on the road with you, if you are the Apostle Paul, probably not a bad thing. You got a lot of uh, uh, patching up to do when you get beat up by the local mob, uh, when you've 
had to endure uh, whippings, when you have not been fed well, when you're spending time in dark, damp prisons, it's probably good to have a friend like Luke with you. Luke was also a bit of a historian. Between the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, he mentions that he's done all sorts of research to kind of put this together. He's he's not winging it. He's He's not just taking, oh, I heard. He's going and investigating the stories, traveling. And and being with Paul, he was able to travel all over the place and ask questions of different early Christians. And there's there's some actually some interesting points in Acts where you'll notice he goes from outside the story to being in the story. Talks about in Acts 16 verse 10, it says, After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's several places where Luke is then all of a sudden in the story. So this isn't just... Uh, this isn't all just told to him. He's actually involved in what's going on. When we look at history, we talk about primary and secondary sources. Well, he's both. He's a primary and a, he's, he's a primary source, but he's also a secondary source. So not only was Luke a, a part of the early movement of the church, but he also accompanied Paul on these journeys. And the fact that he was close to important to Paul is, is evident in the fact that Paul actually mentions him in some, several of what we call the, the prison letters or, or his epistles. He, he lists those who are trapped traveling with him and spending time in prison with him. And Paul says in Colossians 4:14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Damas, they send their greetings to you in Colossae. Writing to his young friend and pastor Timothy, Paul complains that he's been abandoned later on in the story. He's been abandoned by everybody. Only Luke is with me, he says in 2 Timothy 4:11. So although Luke tells us that he's a a bit of a historian, he's not removed from the very things that are going on. These are firsthand accounts. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus means a friend of God. And if you look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he he addresses the same same Theophilus. So he's writing the Gospel of Luke and Acts to this, this man who... It seems like he's probably a government official, judging by the, the title that he gives him. Oh, ex, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, he's also uh, possibly a Roman who's interested in, interested in this whole story of the early church. Interested in what's motivating this early church. He's looking for answers. And so Luke says that when I wrote my gospel, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in my previous book, that's just what he says that Jesus began to do. He says that in verse 1. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. What does that imply? He's not done yet. He's not done yet. We don't, don't just tie a ribbon on the end of Luke and go, story's done. I'll just wait till my ride is leaving. No, he is still at work. So you might be tempted, Theophilus, to think that that's the end of the story, but Jesus is not done yet. And that is what Acts has to say to you and I. It says what Acts, this story has to say to, to us this morning and throughout this series. The gospel work is not done. We don't know how much, how much longer the work has to go on for, but we have our marching orders. We find them in Acts. In fact, we find them in the first chapter here. And so Luke reiterates the words of Jesus in Luke 24, 47, where he says, this message of repentance for forgiveness of sins needs to be preached in his name in all nations, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. He says that in Luke 24. And then he says, he looks at the apostles, and he goes, and you're my witnesses. So if you're asking, well, how's this going to get everywhere? How's this going to happen? It's going to happen with you. So you're not just going to hang out here. You're, You're about to be on the move. But for now, stay in Jerusalem until I clothe you with power from on high. What a great statement in Luke. Clothe you with power from on high. And really, that's the whole story of Acts. 
You want an outline of Acts. It's this simple. The church, fueled by the truth of the resurrection and empowered by the Holy Spirit, announces Jesus' reign from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the outline of Acts. And that is where the next 27, what the next 27 chapters of Acts unpack. Now that is a daunting task. You, you are with the resurrected Jesus, and he says, all right, this message of my resurrection and my reign, this needs to go everywhere. And all these Galileans are looking at each other. These guys who were three years ago were just fishermen who all thought they were just going to go about their, their, whatever their mom or dad did for work, that they were just going to continue on. You have all these, these small town men and women on the outskirts of the Roman Empire who are wondering how in the world do we take on this daunting task of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What did they have in their mind? Well, they're stepping into these new communities. That are, they know they're going to find resistance from the Romans. They know they're going to find resistance from the rulers, from the everyday citizens who are worshiping different Roman gods. How do you take on this daunting cast? Task is the word, if you were looking for it. That's the one I was going for. How do they take this on? Well, I think they had several things in mind. Well, first is the resurrection. They are fueled by the resurrection. Now, some people listen to the story of Jesus' resurrection, and it just seems like a neat story. How do you read the story of the resurrection and think it's just a neat story? Well, I think, possibly, because there's a whole bunch of stories in Scripture about people coming back from the dead. And there are. Uh, in, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah brings a boy back to life. In a strange manner. In Luke 7, Jesus brings a widow's son back to life. In Luke 8, Jesus brings Jairus' son back to life. And the one we're very familiar with, we read about it in the Gospel of Mark. John talks about it as well in his Gospel. Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. Well, are, aren't those resurrections? No, they're not resurrections. Those are resuscitations. There's a difference between being resuscitated and being resurrected. If someone passes out on the street and the paramedics come and they resuscitate them, they're still heading in the same direction towards death. They're still able to break bones. They're still able to die. When you are resurrected, you're going in the opposite direction of death. When you're resuscitated, you're still heading towards the same direction. So Jesus, in being resurrected, he has already done the whole process of heading towards death. He's now heading away from death towards life. Our bodies, as they are, are moving towards death. Jesus is moving away from death. And Luke says that Jesus gave them many proofs. Many proofs. <laughs> Not just one proof. He spends these 40 days after his death, or after his resurrection, before he's ascended, giving them many proofs. Verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, why did he have to give many? Well, put yourself in their situation. Wouldn't, even if you were Thomas and you waited and said, only when I see uh, his body and I touch his flesh, even if you did that, wouldn't the next day, wouldn't you wake up and go, no, but that couldn't have really happened and go, can I, can I do that again? Wouldn't you need more proof? So ask yourself, if your best friend died and came back to life, what would you need for evidence to, to believe them? And then not only believe them, but have that truth empower you to go and tell a whole bunch of other people, you will not believe this story that just happened. What proof would you need? Well, the disciples had wanted proof just like whatever you come up with. The disciples had something similar. 
and whatever they had in their mind that they needed to know in order to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead with a new sort of, not, not just resuscitated, but some new heavenly weird body they don't completely understand. Whatever they needed, they got it. So he gave them many convincing proofs. Convincing proofs. They ended up buying it. They went forward with this truth. How do we know they believed it? Because they went to their death proclaiming it. That's the early church, by the way. Those are the good old days. They went to their death proclaiming that Jesus was resurrected. It, the, the reason that the disciples followed Jesus and called themselves people of the way, called themselves Christians, wasn't because it just felt right. It just felt good inside. It made them feel warm. That would be a horrible reason to follow Jesus. They, they didn't have this kind of pro-con, wake up in the morning, do I feel like following Jesus today or not? Will this benefit me at work? Will this benefit me in my call? How many times do we do that in big and small ways in our lives? We, we try to balance out our faith with those kinds of question, questions. How will I live today? Will my faith serve me well today? What are the benefits of following Jesus today? And we try to figure out what the blessings are and, and okay, a moral life. Yeah, okay, that's probably better. That, and that's how we, those are the wrong starting questions. When someone comes and says, well, I, I think I want to follow Jesus because I just feel empty and I think it will fulfill me. That might be true, but that's not the starting question. The first question we need to ask is, is it true? Is this story True. That's the first question. Tim Keller says this. He says, don't ask whether Christianity is practical, not to start with. Don't ask whether it's relevant. Don't ask whether it's fulfilling. Ask whether it's true. Because if it's true, it will be relevant and practical and fulfilling. If it's not true, it won't be. Therefore, don't come to Christianity because you think it will fulfill you, even though it will. Come because it's true. And if you know it's true and discover it to be true, then it will fulfill you. I would, I would add to that a quote I heard this week. A good story is very powerful, but believing the good story is even more powerful. Living like it's true is even more powerful. Now that quote comes from Cobra Kai, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> and I would add, if, if Jesus is who he said he is, if he rose from the dead as his followers proclaimed and wrote and went to their death proclaiming, and he is the king of all creation... It means to, that, to deny allegiance to him is to fight against the unstoppable movement of history. So our first question is, is it true? Because if he was resurrected from the dead, that changes everything. That changes where we find meaning. It changes where we find identity. It changes where we want to place our, our courage and our time and our boldness. The early church was empowered by the resurrection. But by its implication, they were also powered by recognizing that the kingdom of God had been inaugurated. We, we, we don't pay a lot of attention to this, but this was Jesus' main preaching theme. The kingdom of God has come. That, was, that had to be forefront in the minds of the disciples as they step into the Roman world where emperors are demanding that you worship them as gods. And they are proclaiming a resurrected Christ to think about the kingdom of God coming and moving in on the world's kingdom had to be foremost in their mind. And it's something the disciples did not get right away. At the beginning of Acts, the disciples are suffering from a limited view of God's kingdom, but it, they begin to figure it out more and more. 
In the same way that they needed a whole bunch of proofs that he was, he was resurrected, they also needed some correction on what it meant to call Jesus king. So in verse 6, it says they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now on first read, you might not realize how limited that question is. Are, are you the, the one who has proven you are more powerful than death? That you are the king of all creation? Are you going to restore your kingdom to Israel? What a small, limited way of thinking about the resurrected king of creation. Can we just limit it to the, it's, it's about them. The, the reign of Jesus unites us in a, in a kingdom that the world cannot see, but they want to limit it to their ethnicity and their, their politics and their nationality. That, that, that mindset is so pre-cross. It's so before Jesus. It does not welcome the leveling ground that Jesus has introduced. We have no right to draw lines that the cross has erased. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross has created a new spirit-unified community. So let the world notice and behold and be shaken by this new kind of community that does not, is not quick to draw up lines of division. But the disciples still want to draw those lines. Jesus is saying, you can't do that. They want to say, God, you and us, right? Just you and us, right? Arms around God, and we'll just keep it to ourselves. Let's just take our nation back from the Romans. We do the same things. Remember the good old days of Western Christianity? I just wish we could have those back. And then we go online and ignore the unity that Christ died to create. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, here in this community, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jesus, hey, what about the Democrats? What about the Republicans? What about the liberals? What about the conservatives? What about the NDP? What about people who like Hallmark Christmas movies? Are everybody welcome? What about people who enjoyed Cats, the musical? No, everyone is welcome. The lines have been erased by the cross. The disciples are still learning that at the beginning of Acts. Some of us are still learning that today. The church is the answer to and the, the abolition of those dividing lines. How can people find unity amidst a world that tells us to draw lines, to join tribes, to fight against other tribes? Well, the gospel, the resurrected Jesus, the union of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of Christ in us, unites us in allegiance to him and his kingdom. And we, who are we to draw lines that he has erased? Church has been doing that throughout history. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, who, This Jesus wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, that's great, but when are you going to restore everything to Israel? <laughs> limited. That's limited in scope. That's, that's, that is limiting a resurrected cosmic Christ. Are you once again going to restore your kingdom to the West? <laughs> That's not kingdom of God language. That is human political language. Human kingdoms. 
The kingdom of God is subversive, and it, un, it can go across any political lines. We don't get to keep it to ourselves. It doesn't come about by presidents or politics or petitions. It comes about by benevolent self-sacrifice for the sake of the world that he died to save. And so their statement there, and it belittles the reign of, of, and the power and the significance of what Christ has accomplished and what he declares as the kingdom of God. Jesus says, actually, my kingdom cannot be contained by Israel. And so it's almost like, maybe it's like payback. They say, oh, we're just going to limit it to Israel. No, actually, it's unlimited. And just see, who should I get to push this throughout the world? Perhaps those who think they should keep it to themselves. And he says to them, no, actually, you're going to spread it throughout Jerusalem, but then all over Judea. And when you're done in Judea, I want you to go to those neighbors that you never talk to and you can't stand. In fact, you have hatred and racism towards. Then I want you to go give them the gospel and welcome them into the kingdom. Then I want you to go to the places you're most afraid to go to and take the kingdom with you. I have ascended over all of creation, and as my empowered subjects, you will go. So they had the kingdom of God in them, and the, the demand of Christ to go into the world as, as representatives of the resurrected king of creation. But also, the last thing in their mind must be this, this idea that he ascended. Now, it doesn't say the, the word ascended, but theolo- Christian scholars in theology have used the word ascended throughout history to describe. Paul often uses this at, at, the, at the end of his, of his letters, and he used it in Philippians 2. He talks about Christ ascending to the throne after his resurrection. When people step up in, in Scripture, when they ascend, it has to do with taking a throne. You are a proper king, and you're a, ascending to the throne. We use it because it's kingly language to ascend to a throne. Verse 9 says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. This is something we we often miss, and when we do it, it, I think it limits our understanding of the gospel and our experience as Christians. So we need to, to get this. When we limit the gospel to the fact that Jesus lived and died in our place for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven and spend eternity with him, we've stopped short of the gospel. That is not the full gospel. The end point of the gospel is not our salvation, although we often put a quick stop there. And we, we make, that makes us the center of the story when it stops there. The ending point is that he has ascended and is king over all creation. That's the end story of the gospel. He's taken up, it says, and a cloud hid him. Where do clouds, clouds cover things in the Old Testament? When the presence of God is there. God, it's like God has enveloped him and welcomed him to his throne in heaven. He received as the proper king and he's enthroned in heaven. So the gospel ending is the recognition, and this is why we worship, because the gospel ending is the, is the recognition, allegiance, and worship of the king by his creation. That is why we gather on Sundays, to give the king of all creation his worship. And this is all just practice. As good as the worship was this morning, as much as it made me cry to watch that beautiful young blonde girl sing worship this morning, that's not as good as it gets because we're all going to join with all of creation to give honor to the king, the cosmic king of creation who died to save it. That's the culmination of the gospel. It does not end with my salvation. I am saved towards service and worship of my king. Our salvation is a benefit of the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. 
The good news is that there is a benevolent king who reigns and is king over all creation. Who cannot be dethroned by death and those who follow him get to get in on all the benefits of what he's accomplished. So how do we respond to this? Well, not by staring up, apparently, as the disciples did. Clouds. Neat. Verse 10 says, they were looking intently. They're looking, they're, intently means you're, you're waiting for something more. <laughs> they were looking intently up at the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. And this is not the first time they've had to do this. <laughs> And you know the, resurre- the resurrection verses as well. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Before it was, why do you stand looking for the living among the dead? Now it is, why do you stand looking at the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Here they're told not to stay looking up at the sky. Don't stay stuck in the past But look to the future. Don't focus on questioning and timing, which of course they do. The kingdom of God is now if you are actively living it and proclaiming it. When will you do this, Jesus? No, no, you're going to do it right now. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Go to Mexico, go to the Philippines, go to Zambia. But don't forget your neighbor as well. You and I are the extension of all that Jesus began in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke and Acts together. It's worth your investigation if you've never investigated it before. It's worth your time. It's worth the pursuit of your whole life. Jesus has left left our visit for a a reason. The, The reason we take communion, which we will do in a few minutes, is not only a somber reflection of of Jesus' suffering, but it's because he ascended and we're not stuck looking at the sky because we know he will return again. Those are the the bookends of, of the story that we find ourselves in this morning. There's a few things that that Christ's ascension mean for us in our response. One is that Christ's ascension means intimacy with him. You say, well, how, how does that work? If he goes away, how can we be more intimate with him? John 16, Jesus explains to his disciples the importance of his ascension. Verse 7, he says, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Holy Spirit. The, in Greek, it's the paraclete, one who stands with you. He will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. There's something that happens when Jesus takes his throne that cannot happen unless he does, where you and I receive his spirit. Verses 13 to 15 of John 16 says, But when he, but when he the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will, you will, re- sorry, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, I said to the spirit, I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. By ascending, Jesus takes up this cosmic authority from which he then rules in our hearts through his Spirit. Which we are going to unpack a little more in the next few weeks. But the ascension means his presence. His ascension also means, and it's connected to his presence, the power of Jesus. When, when Jesus walked the earth in first century Palestine, he was voluntarily limited in what he accomplished. 
That is what it means in Philippians 2. When Jesus gave up his rights to be, to be equal with God, he voluntarily gave up or limited what he could accomplish. He even had admitted this to his disciples, that, that, that the disciples would be able to do more than he did. That's a weird thing to say. How can, you do, how can we do more than you could do, Jesus? In John 14, 12, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. That is an interesting statement. There, there is a, an unleashing of, of Jesus, a multiplying of Jesus' influence through his church because of his ascension. We are now, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. If you are a Christ follower, you are part of the body of Christ, which means we are invited to be the animated hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus. That is a beautiful invitation. That Jesus ascended to give us intimacy with him and to give us the spirit of power so that we can step into the world and be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus. That is no small task. How, how in the world can we think Christ, being a Christian is boring? How in the world can we think there's no purpose in it? How in the world can we think we just hunker down until Jesus comes? We're meant to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus. That's why New Testament scholar Kent Hughes, he says this. He says, if the Christian faith is worth believing at all, it is worth believing heroically. Step into it. You do not get the sense throughout Acts that the early church is sorry for their faith. We're sorry, Caesar. Actually, there's another king. You don't get that. You get they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke with boldness. They remembered the resurrected Christ. They remembered his kingdom is on its way. They remembered that their king ascended to rule over all of creation and they stepped with boldness. Why? But because they, they saw the, in the news that they were declaring that they were entrusted with the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus, the cosmic Christ as all-encompassing. The problem is, is we want to move it to the margins. And Jesus said, no, no, I ascended on high. I'm, I rule over all things. Don't push my gospel, my kingdom, to the margins. As, as Cantius says elsewhere, he says, Christ's words taken seriously are nothing less than a declaration of a benevolent war. I love that. A benevolent war. Hear us roar. We are coming. That's why when the, when the apostles came to town in Acts, and we'll see this later, in Acts 17, 6, they were referred to as those who turn the world upside down. When's the last time the community of Coquitlam said, there's CA Church, they turned the world upside down. That would be great. The world is pretty backwards. It needs to be turned, flipped upside down. Well, for all that to happen, it would mean that you and I need to stop looking upward Intently waiting for something else to happen in the sky, looking for the two rainbows that were over Buckingham Palace this week. Stop staring at the sky and get about the business of the kingdom. There you'll find meaning and identity in that story. It would mean that we need to get to the work that he has called us to. It means that, that at work and in school and in Mexico and Zambia and Philippines and in our neighborhood, we ought to be known as those who are part of a completely different kingdom. We don't get in the fights of the world. We, get in, we, we are part of the benevolent war to show the love and reign of Christ over everybody. 
Not one that makes us obsolete or out of touch, but makes us more concerned and compelled by love and compassion for the world that Jesus died to save. So how do we stop looking up? Well, we get involved in the mission of the church is one thing. Some of us, as you're stepping into this new season, as was mentioned, you maybe need to get involved in Alpha and understand this larger story that we've been called into. Maybe you need to go to Next Step and learn of how you can be involved in this church, serving and learning more about what it, what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Some of us just, when it comes to where we are, and I, I talked a bit about this last week when we talked about um, redeeming work, need to see your everyday life in, in light of this truth, in light of the resurrected Christ, in light of the fact that he reigns, in light of the fact that he ascended and he is coming back. That'll change your, your work in the warehouse this week. <laughs> That'll change your interaction with a boss that just doesn't get you. That, that'll change the way you try to figure out what your identity is. Because every other identity, you've heard me say it, is it's like a treadmill that you can't reach the end and you can't hit the off switch. And Jesus wants to kick, kick the plug out and say, stop running. I've already run the race. Just get behind me and join the benefits. Move this kingdom forward. Turn communities upside down with the good news of my resurrection and my kingdom and my ascension. Fight the benevolent war. Be heroic in your boldness with the gospel. This is where we're going this year. This is where we're going to try to glean from the story of the early church. And this is why each month we practice communion. I've said this before. I I love doing communion because even if I totally screwed up on my message, you can't miss the gospel when it comes to communion. The gospel is a, or the communion is a symbolic, a drama to, to, to play out the story of the gospel. All the way to the reign and the return of Christ. Because when we take communion, and maybe some of you are, not, are maybe new to church and you don't, you don't know what communion is. But when we take communion, we take bread. Because on the night that Jesus was about to be betrayed by Judas and taken in to, to, be, to be beaten and given a, a, a fake trial and be crucified, he took bread and he broke bread and he gave it to his, his close friends. And he said, whenever you gather together, I want you to eat bread. And when you eat that bread, I want you to remember that this bread represents my body. Remember that I gave my body for you. Every time you eat this together in community. And then he took a cup at the end of the meal. And he said, whenever you drink the cup, I want you to remember that this cup uh, represents a new covenant. It represents a covenant that I've made with you through spilling my own blood. I've spilled this blood as a payment for your sin. Why? So that you can be welcomed into resurrected life. Why? So that you can be welcomed into this kingdom. Why? Because I'm going to return someday as the, and the whole world will see that I am the king of creation and heaven and earth and those under the earth will bow and proclaim that I am king. This proclaims that we're already on the right side of history when we eat this together. It reminds us that whatever you went through this week, whatever struggle you went through this week, whatever addiction you've been struggling with this week, whatever anger you are in, whatever you're struggling at work, it all takes place within the story that's proclaimed through communion. And so if you are a Christ follower, uh, I would invite you to, you don't have to be an attender of this church, uh, but if you're a Christ follower, I invite you to take part in communion 
this morning. If you're not a Christ follower, I would say just as, as other people are coming up, just remain in your seats. Because this is, this would, for you, it would just be snacks. And pretty weird snacks. Not really good snacks. Bland, in fact. <laughs> but what I love about communion is it takes elements that you can find in almost any culture. Simple bread that is our sustenance every day. And drink to sustain us as well. So when we take communion, we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember that, as Paul says, we eat this until the resurrected king returns. Stop looking up. He will return. But it also reminds that he is our sustenance right now. Whatever you've come with today, whatever hell you are walking through this morning, he, he wants to be the sustenance that's getting you through this day. And then tomorrow, come to him again and say, be the sustenance I need today. And if you need to take some bread with those around you tomorrow to remind you, then take that bread and drink the cup and say, be my sustenance for today. So this is how we're, we're going to do this. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, uh, our servers will be up here. And all I'm going to ask is that you step out into the aisles and make your way down. Our servers will be right here. You can take the bread, you can take your cup, and you can head back to your seat and take it whenever you'd like. We won't do it all together. You can just take it whenever you'd like. But once you've grabbed it from our service, you can head to your left here, to your right there, and go up the stairs and back to your seats, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then let's take and invite the, the team up as well, and then we'll take communion together. God of grace, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, your unrelenting love for us. Thank you for, as we read... Um, you're not slow at keeping your promises. You're patient. <laughs> we don't understand patience in our age, but you are a patient God, not wanting any to suffer. You want to welcome all into your kingdom, all into the salvation you offer. And the benefits of come, coming, uh, coming into your kingdom, a future of, of knowing you and, and being resurrected and living out eternity in your presence. And so as we take the bread and we take the cup today, Plant us firmly in the beautiful story that you have created for us. And I pray, as you would do with the, with the early believers in the, that we read of in the book of Acts, that coming out of this place today, you would fill us with your spirit and give us a boldness and a courage to fight the benevolent war of love for this community, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.